Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly dungeon muser today. Uh, Today I want to talk about how you can use uh, setting elements to use storytelling in a sandbox game. Um, I had, uh, I've talked about this stuff kind of peripherally in the past on the podcast, but uh, I have recently watched a really good uh, video uh, that I I shared it on uh, Twitter uh, that has, uh, it talks about using um, level design in video games for storytelling, and it, it itself was building on a series of talks that were um, offered at the uh, Game Designers Conference, the GDC uh, conference over the, uh, well, and I don't think they were from the same year, they're from different years, but uh, I have mentioned before how the GDC uh, YouTube channel and the GDC uh, pay- webpage itself can uh, have a, or can be a source of some really terrific ideas for uh, dungeon masters and um, game masters. But uh, I wanted to specifically talk about some ideas and some uh, um not necessarily, well, some ideas and also some tech techniques that I'm using in um, in my game, in my current uh, Night Below campaign, uh, to uh, to kind of convey setting information uh, about, or rather, story through the uh, through setting. So, let's uh, let's get to the uh, episode. So, the um, what prompted this this. Um, uh, segment or this this topic was, as I said, a video I saw recently that did a really good job of uh, summarizing sort of the ways that you can communicate story through uh, level design or through setting. And while, again, like some of the elements that they talk about in the video may not translate directly to tabletop role-playing games because there are certain things like color design and ambiance and, and the feeling of claustrophobia uh, of for level design that, that may not specifically be translatable over to role-playing games. Role-playing games can do things that video games cannot. So there are other ways to do that stuff to uh, convey uh, story through your uh, through your setting uh, design. And the reason I wanted to limit this, or at least um, make this specifically applicable to sandbox settings, is because I think that the, the idea uh, sometimes is uh, that with... Uh, you know, taken at their extreme, sandbox settings don't have any, you know, quote-unquote story to them. It is strictly emergent uh, story or emergent story development. And that, I mean, that can be the case, but you can also, um, you can do uh, the kind of, like, living world stuff where the world is developing and the world is, uh, has a, you know, a story to it. There are things that are going on. There are factions that there's a history and, and there are factions that are pursuing specific goals um, without having to convert your game over to more of a story-based or plot-based campaign. And this thoughts the talk that uh, or the video that was referencing the, the talks about level design I think did a really it really helped me figure out or at least recognize that it's something I'm doing in my night below campaign uh, that uh, you know that that I I, uh, I didn't I don't think I necessarily realized that I was doing it and it gave me some ideas of ways to manage that for um, for future and I thought I'd pass those along as well so uh, for those who are are new to the podcast the the night below campaign that I'm referencing is my ongoing advanced Dungeons and Dragons second edition campaign that I'm running with uh, Carl Sargent's classic. Uh, Night Below uh, can, uh, Mega Adventure, and that is uh, currently we are uh, 17 or 18 sessions into it, I can't remember offhand uh, at the time of recording, but it is 
yeah, I mean, we're, we're at the point right now where the players have gone and explored a lot of the world and have started to, um, you know, uh, not only are they pursuing their specific uh, adventure goals, they're also realizing what other bigger, wider kind of possibilities there are out there. And I'm actually doing this in my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game too, Reavers of Tula. And that one's certainly got a lot. That's uh, 28 sessions in now, and that's got a lot more mileage under its uh, under its feet, as it were. Uh, but that campaign, I'm doing the exact same thing too, where I, I have been seeding some uh, stuff in the that's happening in uh, their, the interactions the players have been having with the different uh, um, adversaries or uh, different, not necessarily adversaries, but the different factions, um, things they've been learning from different NPCs they've been talking to, and also things they can infer from the setting. And... Um, so one of the things that I, maybe that's that's an that might be a helpful way to to um, you know to, to sort of frame uh, the this discussion. So the things that I'm thinking about is this isn't the storytelling uh, that goes on in a sandbox game is the the way that you're contextualizing the players in the wider world. You know, in in the wider in, in a sandbox game you. You know, there's more than just like populating hexes and things like that that needs to go on. I think I see a lot of people seem to focus on that stuff. How I'm like, I'm gonna have this encounter here, I'm gonna have this encounter there, and, and whatever. And like, that's fine, you know, to, to do that. But if what you want to do is present a uh, is have uh, some structure to your emergent story that's going on, so your players could discover like, oh shit, this is a wider. There's more things going on here than I had expected, and. Uh, you give them the option of engaging with that material and then, uh, you know, uh, having that become part of their saga. Uh, the way that you, I think, you don't need to necessarily key that to specific locations or specific encounters. What you can do is have a list of explicit and implicit story bits or story beats that you can introduce when you choose. And this is, it is getting a little bit out of the realm of the, um, what do you call it, uh, the, of the truly random uh, creation, random encounters, random, um, you know, things that, that come from, or at least that are praised in a idealized or platonic version of a sandbox campaign where everything is randomly generated and everything is, you know, is sort of um, on the fly. But what, and this does lend more towards the sort of like quantum ogre idea where like wherever you end up going, you end up encountering this thing. But what you could do instead is if you really want to, you know, you don't want to have too firm of a hand on the rudder directing where the campaign's going, what you could do is just create a random table that has specific story elements in it. But I mean, I think what you can all, a, a more constructive way to do this is if you have set piece uh, things like a set dungeon or a set keep or a set warren with you know uh, adversaries in it you just uh, find a way to communicate the story stuff through there so the way that I've been doing it in my campaigns is I have a list in both of them of sort of uh, power players or there's the history of the campaign different story elements of the campaign things that that add texture to the history and the ongoing struggles in that campaign whether that is the current struggles between the different uh, factions in my Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, uh, whether it is the, um, the history of the region of Harrenshire, you know, in my, uh, what do you call it, my uh, Night Below campaign, 
Um, what I'm doing in both of those is I have set up ways to communicate through uh, either implicit or explicit uh, ways. The implicit, see, so the explicit stuff is easier. The explicit stuff is where the players encounter some representation of that faction in the or that element or that thing in the setting. You know, they encounter, like in my uh, Night Below campaign, there are these goblins that have this blue dye on their face or they've got some kind of blue thing that has marked them as different from other um, uh, from other goblins. Other goblins in this particular setting, uh, they've all got this ochre or yellow colored skin and the uh, these goblins are the exceptions to that. They've got this crazy marking on it. If those who are familiar with the Night Below campaign itself may be sort of familiar with where this is, what, what it comes from, but I've already made, for myself, I've made some pretty substantial changes to the, uh, to that uh, element. The Goblins of the Ring are a thing from the original Night Below campaign, but I've pretty substantially rewritten them and given them a different purpose and a different backstory and a different setting and whatever. They play a very different role in the, in the campaign now than what they did in the original game. But nevertheless, what it does is that explicit way of uh, of uh, that explicit visual tells the players like, oh, hold on, there's something different and unique about these things. What is that? You know. And uh, f- further, there was a, an explicit moment where the characters encountered other regular, like the yellow or ochre skinned goblins, uh, in the sort of hideout for these blue skinned goblins. And there was, you know, that that uh, was another explicit way of like, wait, well, how come these guys are? are in here and they don't have those markings, but there are other ones that do have those markings. What's the, what's going on here? It is an explicit way. And then as the characters will, you know, go through this uh, particular Warren, they're going to learn more about why, why that's the case. And that's explicit. Like that's really in your face. That's your adversaries look different than others. This is a, there is a story reason for why this is happening. So um, it's, it's very intrusive. Uh, by contrast, the implicit stuff is things like over, you know, uh, we um, we had a random encounter with the uh, uh, the characters where they encountered a uh, a downed Aarakocra, and the Aarakocra uh, was part of this other other element that they've since come to learn is a community of Aarakocra that are living in one part of the Patchwork Hills, one part of the, the campaign map that we're playing on, and... Um, a thing that happened is that there is a uh, th- this thing was downed or, or killed largely by an arrow, an oversized knoll arrow, and I think I'd say that's implicit. Um, and in the reason where it's the 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 nature of the arrow isn't something that they really until they actually investigated it and asked for particulars about it, they didn't necessarily know a lot about it. And they had already heard that there were knolls spotted or uh, kind of lurking somewhere around the Patchwork uh, Hills. And this gave a little more detail and a little more, uh, re- a little, uh, in a little way it reinforced more elements of it. And it had some implicit information about what's going on with those knolls. For one, they seem to, at least uh, for this particular one, they seem to have engaged this uh, Aarakocra. So, so maybe it... it uh, it implies that there are some troubles or struggles between the gnolls and, and the Aarakocra, uh, uh, and it certainly uh, gives an, uh, the um, implicit understanding that these things are capable of downing Aarakocras 
you know. So there is some, it's not explicit information, but there is some implicit uh, conclusions that the characters can reach through that little bit of, um, of in-the-world storytelling. And uh, I think that, like, what I, the way that I introduced that stuff was not, again, some of it was as set-piece stuff, like the blue skin goblins. That's a, a bit of uh, explicit uh, storytelling by way of um, scene, or of, like, uh, setting elements that uh, was, you know, was part of the original campaign. Um, but there's other one, and like another implicit thing is I've been lying, uh, leaving hints or about um, the the way that this this one dungeon that they've been not. I mean, it is a dungeon, I guess, but this one sort of um, stronghold of goblins that they've been clearing out. There is some implicit elements about that that I have been describing that also suggests. And I don't know if that's explicit or implicit, but it it, it relates to. A potential or a, a history behind this potential, this place that goes beyond what the goblins have. Although maybe that's linked in as well too. Another a, a way that um, there is an explicit or implicit um, way of uh, of connecting setting elements. There's been these dogs that my, my players kept running into dogs as a wild, uh, you know, as a random encounter. And once they learn that the dogs for some reason keep running into the hills that's another little bit of I think I don't know if you'd call it implicit or explicit I think it's implicit because it do, they don't know what that relates to yet um, but there's some strange little bit of, of history that's that's going on there and these are the things that I think uh, you don't need to have them listed as specific like I talked to X then Y uh, what you can do is have the you know, if you're a DM for this, in the same way that you're going to prep random encounter tables and so forth, you can make a list of story elements that you want to introduce. Like the, and you don't need to put those in a clear like, here's where I'm linking this up here or whatnot. Just put them as big ideas, like big, you know, like you're. I'm trying to think of examples that will not spoil either of those campaigns. But I mean, if you say you want to have like there is. Um, uh, well, I mean, here's something that's not in either of them. There's a spaceship hidden underneath, you know, that's crashed years ago somewhere on the, you know, in my uh, the region of my campaign setting. Well, explicit, implicit things that would come from that, you, you can sort of draw ideas for how how that might um, play out in the region. Like there may be um, ru- like, uh, ruins or, or elements of, from the crashed spaceship that might be that might show up in different places. There may be languages that are affected by that. There may be, um, you know, from some surviving creatures. There may be bizarre creatures that that lurk in certain regions. And you can use those setting elements to communicate the story that um, that is still present. You know, that still that doesn't in, infringe on the sandbox nature of it, where the players go where they want to go and they encounter and engage with whatever um, you know story elements they want to engage with. But what you do by um, by picking those elements to include in there, those little ta- you know, throwaway bits of role-playing fluff, that's how you reinforce the overall story. So as the players get more and more engaged with the sandbox, they, they, it comes that bigger picture comes together. And the way you manage that as a DM is just you know um, brainstorming some tidbits that you could introduce like you know coinage, coinage that is from a different uh, place that, that plays up that stuff. Um, and 
you can keep what, what I would suggest is you keep it as a checklist. If you don't want to keep it just in your, in your head and then dole it out as, as needed, create a physical checklist of some of the ideas you've got for how you could communicate that stuff in an ambiance type, type way. So a way that um, it's the elements they're encountering, it's the bizarre circuitry style tattoos that say one tribe favors. Uh, or this is going on that uh, that alien crash thing. It's the strange hybrids that have uh, you know that that are there. It's the weird um, guy in town who doesn't age ever, who actually turns out to be an android, you know, uh, from that uh, that's that um, spaceship. Uh, everyone else thinks he's an immortal elf, but it turns out, oh no, he's actually a uh, uh, and you know an android who just doesn't doesn't age because he's a robot. Um, you know, and and I mean. Or like, let's say, you know, there is a slumbering demon lord in there too. Well, what do you, what are the things that you could, you know, uh, include in there? I'd, I'd think like nightmares, you know, people having nightmares that they may bring up at certain points. Or, you know, the, what is it, the autonomic drawing, uh, I think that's what it's called, the one where your, your hand draws without you thinking. You know, maybe there's um, a certain uh, flourishes and elements that uh, uh, that artists are subconsciously including in their... Uh, in their pieces, and uh, someone who's in the know, who like can speak the language of, of demons or can read them at least, they may recognize and say, like Jesus, why why do all these um, baseboards? Why do all these uh, you know all these um, the these scrimshaw things that are for sale in town? Why do they all incorporate this demonic alphabet when everyone seems to be pretty nice here? Uh, or you could you know have um, a discoloration or weird, you know, flight patterns or things like that. Or, you know, um, I mean, you can think of all sorts of different ways to, to potentially incorporate that stuff. Um, you know, uh, maybe there's a, a cult that keeps coming to town because they, they're following dreams. The, the dreaming of this, uh, you know, dreaming um, things of these, this chain demon uh, may be calling out to its followers. Um, you could look at, if you're playing in a setting that has a detailed, uh, you know, kind of like, um, set of um, iconography or whatnot for different demon lords or different uh, evil gods. You know, any of the D and D settings will likely have all that stuff in there. And then uh, the Pathfinder, you know, their I can't remember their book of evil uh, stuff as it was called, but it has a bunch of really cool ideas for uh, what types of symbols and whatnot that are associated with the different demon lords and you could steal that idea you know and and incorporate that there's suddenly you know there is a lot of uh, heather or a lot of uh, evil i don't know like whatever kind of uh growth maybe it's black roses that associate with your demon lord and those may grow uh in abundance in the in the region you know, and that could be a nice little, it doesn't need to mean anything for the scene that you're in, but it's just a nice little bit of ambiance that suggests at that wider story element, you know, and, uh, and I mean, this can also go to the, in a more explicit way into the beliefs and the actions and the, um, the interests of the different NPCs that are, that are populating your campaign, the ones that the players will be running into and taking jobs from and stuff like that. Uh, that's another way you can more explicitly play up those elements without necessarily linking it to a specific quest or a specific scene or setting or whatnot. You know, it's just a nice way of, of communicating that, um, that bigger picture 
And that's what gives that, not only does it, does it help you tell your story and also reinforce the later level, you know, story elements. If you are like that slumbering demon lord does get freed or the, the characters discover the spaceship, there's all that uh, settings and story stuff that has really helped play up and give uh, a, the payoff of finding that stuff uh, a much more significant outcome uh, than, say, yeah, than just sort of them stumbling across it. And I think for a, a sandbox setting, you don't need to necessarily indulge in specific story like it, to, to change your campaign to be more of a plot-based thing. You can very easily just change it uh, by keeping those checklists, you know, keep a checklist of the things you want to introduce about specific things and then just look for opportunities in play. When players go to certain places, that's where you, you fill in those little bits of opportunity, little bits of, um, of fluff that you had prepared beforehand. And then you can also, I mean, what that will also do, I think, is prompt your mind to uh, think of ways to improvise ways of, of introducing those story elements to lay seeds. And if nothing comes from them, there's nothing lost. But for those players that are paying attention to that minutia, the ones that, um, um, that you know, like, for instance, we had in one of our first uh, sessions in our Ash campaigns, the guys found a barrow that had a bunch of specific markings about, like, fighting uh, snake men in it. And it wasn't until more than a year afterwards that the player... Uh, who found the this crazy scimitar with snake markings on it in the uh, crypt that he finally actually came to sort of realize like, oh shit, this is what this thing is, this is why it does this, this is why it's, you know, th this is a thing. And this is in the same way that like, it, it's finding Sting and finding, um, uh, what's, what's the other sword called? Sting and, um, I can't remember what the other one's called. Uh, but anyway, those uh, those swords in the barrow, and it's not to say that everything has to have that consequence to it. It's just why not throw that little bit out there, and then if you have an opportunity to to flesh out the story later on, you know, um, then that that just uh, makes for a much more realized and satisfying world, and players feel much more part of that. Then so so yeah, I mean, like that's that's my thoughts right now for how. You know how you can incorporate in a in a reasonably manageable way how you can incorporate the uh, you know storytelling elements in a sandbox style game in a non plot driven game how you can still play you know have that world feel like a world full of story without intruding on the player's agency and their freedom to go and do and make the you know whatever they want and make the story the overall plot of the campaign whatever they want. All right, now let's talk about the state of play. Uh, so the state of play uh, is, uh, from this particular week, has involved uh, two sessions of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons with our Night Below campaign, and it has had one session of our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea campaign, and one of our, I own a first session of our new cult uh, Dracula dossier mashup. So, let me talk about those in, in uh, maybe a chronological order. So, I'm trying to think what happened on Wednesday's session. Uh, so, Wednesday and I think well, both I know that both sessions have involved further uh, fighting in uh, Heathertop Warren, and uh, where the the guys have uh, assaulted the this goblin stronghold and. Uh, we're about, I don't know, maybe five, no, that's not true, but we're about maybe three sessions into 
the 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 uh, assault on the stronghold itself, and it's been really really fun. Um, so far, the guys have uh, taken out. Gosh, I mean, maybe twenty, no more than that, close to forty goblins. I think thirty goblins at least. So it's uh, which is a really fun. One of the guys commented during the um, uh, the campaign. Like, I guess one thing I'll say is so it really was just a lot of fighting uh, that was going on. But one of the things that was particularly fun about uh, this session, and it's something that I enjoyed a lot about the other kind of big set piece fights that we've had with our old school games, is that you can have you know twenty or thirty tokens on the on the board, and it really doesn't doesn't slow down play all that much. It just it makes it feel like a really epic you know battle, but it doesn't slow things down to a crawl. And I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit. There's not 30 at, at level one or two, but our heroes are level two now, and they are. Uh, I think that they faced at most about 10 goblins plus the chieftain at the same time, and um, it was uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was some really tense moments. It was cool having the full being able to take advantage of the full battle map because there was like different you know skirmishes taking place at different points because the I mean for one the, the force of goblins was so big that they were able to be uh, uh, fighting our heroes in a couple of different places at once um, and also there was a, this was a second time because of uh, the use of a nice big map that the goblins have actually been able to flank the heroes uh, they weren't heroes weren't watching their their backs terribly well uh, and they left all the clothies at the at the rear and sure enough the uh, goblins threw open a set of doors that the guys had done nothing to secure uh, they did do it the guys did a great job of securing one set of doors when they were going in but they kind of either abandoned or forgot about that strategy as they were going further into the uh, warren uh, but uh, it all came out in the watch we had uh, one near death and uh, the mortal wounds uh, mechanic that we're using for this one that I, I introduced it a couple of uh, sessions back. This is basically where we're using the hovering at death's door optional rule from the uh, second edition AD&D uh, DMG where the the uh, heroes don't die until they hit minus 10 XP. They, they, uh, when they hit zero or, or less they lose one hit point per round until someone spends an action stabilizing them or, or until they start getting healing magic. Well I've also cribbed a rule from um, Adventurer Conqueror King for Mortal Wounds, and we're using those uh, mechanics in here as well to modify to fit with the AD&D like stat bonuses and stuff, and the skill, the spells that uh, AD&D has. But it's pretty cool. Like it's, um, uh, it definitely gives when your character goes down and dies, there is a a moment of uh, of kind of panic when you've got the uh, you got to make that Mortal Wounds roll when you're healed back up again. Uh, to the point where one of our heroes actually uh, <laughs> almost had ruined genitalia uh, as a result of this li- uh, giant lizard bite. Uh, he spent the narrative meta currency that uh, we're, we use in that campaign. I'm, I call it Astonishing Fortune, same as I do in my other game, my Ash game. And uh, I let them kind of bump the results up on the Mortal Wounds uh, check uh, so that that way they're, you know, if they roll. They make a shitty roll. They don't just have to re-roll. They can bump it up and get a better result. So, um, so yeah, and I think that everybody has had at least one... I think the there's one character, uh, Arlen's uh, dwarf, who has not yet uh, tasted the uh, mortal wounds table, but uh, everybody else has had a, a swing at it so far. So, um, 
so that was good. I mean, look, it, and what, what that does is it gives, you know, death is not a, and going down is not a small thing. And the faster you get to giving that person relief, the better uh, the results are. Like, the, the sooner that the person gets medical aid, the, the better the, the mortal wounds check is. And if the guys get to them right away, there's almost no chance of the characters um, suffering any kind of substantial, you know, uh, penalty apart from getting below, you know, uh, them having to expend healing resources to get themselves back up. But the uh, if they let them wait, especially if they wait to the end of fight, there's a pretty big penalty there. And I really like that. Like, it definitely incentivizes getting shit done during combat rather than uh, waiting until afterwards. Um, it really gives, um, you know, uh, especially for characters who go down, I, I, I've seen before, I mean, I've seen before people complaining about uh, f- uh, 5e being a bit of a whack-a-mole kind of thing where characters constantly pop back up with no appreciable penalties. And I mean, the mortal wounds chart, boy, does that really throw a wrench in, in that whole arrangement. So I, I like it a great deal. Um, and it's not because, um, you know, I want to punish my heroes. I think sometimes people make a mistake uh, for the reason or make a mistake as to the reason why old school play is attractive to so many of us. And the reason isn't because I want my players' characters to die. It's the reason is because I want the situation to have the appropriate level of threat. You know, I want uh, the heroes to be fighting to stay up. I don't want them to rely on like, oh, so-and-so's down. That's okay. We'll get to him later. You know, like I, um, that, that should be a, a, a ticking clock. That should be a really a, a thing that you should dread. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's pretty good. And I mean, um, the way I've been doing Astonishing Fortune in this game, uh, which interfaces with that set of rules, is that I give the characters one point of Astonishing Fortune uh, each session for every character that's in there. And I'm, it's rare that we have one left over by the end of the session. And especially in, in um, combat-heavy scenes, it's interesting to see the guys always holding one back because they can also spend it for a character not to die. So they're always sort of waiting, like, no, 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 let's just, you know, in the event things go really, really bad, let's just keep this, uh, keep this uh, resource uh, for the rainy day. So I like that a, a lot. Um, doesn't make them feel like uh, superheroes, but, I mean, it does a, it goes a long way to making the characters... Um, uh, making the characters feel like uh, they are, um, they're not just going to, you know, I don't know, I mean, they, they feel like they're heroes, that they can feel that they can get invested in their characters without the game transitioning over to being that kind of whack-a-mole thing that uh, people criticize 5e for. So, um, so that's been great. Um, we've had our first sort of like big batch of loot uh, from this new thing too, so players are going to have to spend some downtime identifying that stuff or getting someone to identify it because there's a lot of, uh, identify the identify spell in AD&D. If you don't remember or you're not familiar, it's really punishing, really punishing. Uh, you, you take a huge con loss and there's also only, it's only a chance of identifying stuff. So it's pretty cool. Um, what else? The fight itself overall was, was, I thought, I thought was really good. Uh, it's the characters had lots of they were active the whole time. Like everyone's running all over. There's no shortage of targets for the heroes. Um, the more heavily armored guys felt tougher. You know, they were harder to, to damage with these things. And the clothies, you know, kind of went down like a, a ton of bricks. <laughs> so um, it, it was. It felt like the uh, the gameplay 
um, accurately modeled the uh, what was going on in the fiction. I like that. Um, and what else? The let's see here. I think that's that's pretty much it for for those ones. It was uh, really a great couple of sessions. Like the the heroes really did uh, really did well, and um, the and the system itself did really really well. You know, like we're getting uh, we're getting a really good handle on how to track the um, uh, actions. So in in the same way that uh, when I first started running Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea. Uh, it was taking a little while for the players to get used to like and typing out their actions or like listing their actions, then rolling initiative, and then then going through them. Uh, in this one, you know, the players are doing a really good job of entering the time thing. I don't I don't make them say what specifically they're doing, but they have in mind what they're doing, and then they, um, you know, someone rolls initiative and everyone adds their modifier, and then we just count up from that, and it's it's been going really well. I liked, uh, yeah, and even the big fights too, you know, I was concerned last podcast, I think I talked about how Ash had that regimented, you know, way of going through the different actions that AD&D might not handle that as well. Um, I don't know. I think it's a different, I mean, it's a different animal, but um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I also had someone on the YouTube channel uh, leave a comment and, and re- reference, or not reference, but uh, suggest that I check out an old uh, module for AD&D called Axe of the Dwarvish Lords. And it is uh, a module that it's a it's actually a higher level module, like sixth, twelfth, or thirteenth level, but it includes a uh, a whole section of uh, basically like rules to to try and make goblins a bigger threat for higher level things. Playing on the idea of like they're they're using their numbers to present a significant obstacle, and I like it. I, there's a lot of really neat rules in there. Uh, I've also because I wanted to freshen, like you get better ideas for traps. I, on my own recognizance, I actually went to the old ruins of of uh, Undermountain box set. I don't know if a physical copy of that yet, but I uh, and I actually don't know if I would order one because I don't know if I need it. But um, I guess when does that ever stop me? Uh, but the ruins under Undermountain has some really good uh, suggestions for traps. So there's a whole bunch of different traps that were in there, and I am. And, you know, like I know for just to spare folks referring me to Grimtooth's, I know Grimtooth's Traps has a bunch of uh, things in there too, but I'm not looking for either gonzo traps or looking for things that are actually going to kill my characters. I want to have things that will be, um, that will present a challenge uh, and give the, the thieves a reason to start looking for traps, uh, but um, but not something that's going to be so, you know, deadly or so like ridiculously elaborate that I, I, I will not... Myself, for my own sensibilities, I won't use it in play. So, so I, I, I didn't go to Grimtooth. So I went to my, um, what do you call it? I went to my uh, Ruins of Undermountain box set, and there's a lot of good ideas in there for how to, like, not only for ideas for for traps themselves, but also ideas for how to structure them mechanically. One of the things I've actually been uh, struggling with with uh, AD, running AD and D is trying to figure out how, like, if there's a poison, I, I know what. I can, you know, I make people make saves. If there is a, um, a spear trap or something like that, they have a Thacko and they make an attack roll against the targets. But I wasn't quite sure how to model um, things like uh, pit traps or whatever, you know? Like, I mean, I could do just dex checks, but that feels like for, with, I mean, that I don't know, that felt like it would always, um, the players would always avoid that. Um, but... I, uh, yeah, I, I actually found a couple good ideas, in particular a really insidious 
uh, a noose trap where you got to make three checks and you have to succeed at all three and it's different attributes um, before to avoid getting caught by it and then you start getting like basically garroted. I love it. That one I'm for sure <laughs> going to be making use of. But um, they also had some good examples of um, what do you call it? Uh, like um, bear traps. You know, it's like you step on them and they chomp your leg, kind of thing. So there's I've got some good ideas from that uh, as well. So that I've got some fun, neat tricks. Now, the way that the rules work in Acts of the Dwarvish Lords is basically it, it reminds me of like the swarm rules from 3rd edition or the troop rules from Pathfinder. Uh, Pathfinder's 1st uh, edition's Bestiary 6 uh, introduced this uh, type of monster called troops, which is basically what it sounds like. It's a troop of troops. And it's similar to the rules out of uh, the 5th edition DMG where you kind of like a certain amount of creatures are assumed to hit a certain amount of times and do an average amount of damage. So you just sort of there's average damage that they do, and you just roll what that damage might be. And uh, that's effectively how they structure the goblins in this, or at least one of the uh, elements of uh, volley fire. And I don't know, you know, I mean, the, the thing with rolling them all individually right now is that there's always a chance in at 20. And even my, my hero, who has the crazy armor and whatnot... Um, the uh, dwarf who's got, uh, you know, heavy armor, he's got a decent deck score, and he's got a magic shield, and he also assumes his defensive position so he gets another AC bonus. He's really hard to, to injure. You know, i got to roll a mat 20 with the goblins, with most goblins, to actually to hit him. And it happens sometimes, you know. I mean, it, it happened in a really inopportune moment in one of our earlier uh, assaults on it. But the thing is, is that the character, or the player, I think, uh, he can reliably feel that he's safe, he's fine. Like, the, the odds are that unless I roll that nat 20, then he's he's going to be fine. He will not get injured by this barrage of, of uh, goblin fire. And I'm fine with that. Like, that that fits what the player's expectation are. What the um, the rules from Axe of Dwarvish Lords do is basically make it a flat... It's like a fireball. It's, it just does damage, and you can make a save to reduce the damage to half. But uh, And then you can also reduce it further by... Um, I think it's the... It's the AC bonus. Oh, that's only if your AC is below zero. Uh, but you reduce the damage as well, too, uh, further if your AC is below zero. But uh, but I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm not sure that would... The attrition of weathering those all those arrows each round, I think that's a lot less... That's a lot less fun than the random chance that maybe one arrow might slip through. The tension that comes from... What, waiting to see if the DM rolls, uh, you know, what good enough uh, rolls a nat twenty in this case, to to actually injure the, the player. I think that that is more satisfying and more fun than just you know doing the the sort of the check of uh, or the attrition sort of watch where you're watching your hit points go down and hoping that the you a make your save and b the DM doesn't roll terribly high on the damage. So I am. Um, I, I like the ideas, the rules in that. I might use them at a different point, but I don't think I'm going to use them just yet because I, I'm fine with the way that they work right now. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. So, I mean, like, that's... And, and I think like at a higher level when there does need to be an element of attrition to resources, then, yes, I will definitely make use of some of those rules uh, because I, I like the idea of being able to use lower-level creatures uh, or continue to use them as a threat as, uh, as you go up. Um, more modern games have different ways of doing that, like by adding levels to, you know, adversaries. But, but yeah, but it's a, it's a, I really appreciate the suggestion, and I definitely will, will be making use of some of those. There's a, oh, there's another thing they have in there 
called um, Thunderpots, which are basically like bombs, and they are insanely dangerous. I love them. That is something where it is. Uh, it's very. It's very similar to like a fireball or whatever, where you you roll damage and then you make a save to try and reduce it. Um, I'm totally okay with that. That is an expendable resource. The goblins won't have, uh, uh, you know, a continuing or unlimited supply of, of uh, thunderpots. But uh, holy shit, I wish I knew, I knew about that before uh, this encounter because I would have made use of that for sure. <laughs> Those are pretty cool. Um, so that was our, our that's our AD&D campaign. It's going really well. Um, I keep finding more interesting things to from AD&D to incorporate into the campaign. I'm really enjoying seeing the guys going up. It's it's been cool seeing them hit second level, and yeah, I hope this campaign goes on and on and on. I'm really I oh I finished drawing up some uh, the more most recent maps as well too for it too. So we've got uh, some great maps um, for dungeons uh, for uh, for the place they're exploring right now. Um, I also have a. Um, uh, I also have a. Uh, uh, our, our had our Ash uh, campaign, and our Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea game is going really, really well. Uh, we had session 28 this past uh, week, which was really weekend, which was really great. Uh, that session was the fallout of the their defense of their keep. Uh, so they had uh, in the last session they had uh, defeated a um, what do you call it a uh, army that was uh, invading and drove them off. They captured a they had one captive. So we sort of did the aftermath of that. They found what magic items they they had uh, recovered from the uh, from the the fallen soldiers. They got their what else happened? They. Uh, yeah, they got their magic items from their fallen soldiers. They interrogated the adversary and they made plans for kind of what they're going to do next. They've learned a lo- quite a bit actually about what was going on in the other army. They learned some of the wizards and witches and whatnot that were in there, and the tension that's going on in that in that army as well too. And I mean, I'm not the players may not be able to trust what this person has been saying, but uh, I I don't know further to what I had said on a previous uh, session or previous uh, episode about how I didn't want to, you know, I like it so much better when it's not gamified. That's absolutely what this was. You know, all the players were able to sort of jump in and do some interesting interaction with this character. Um, They sort of decided in character who was going to be the one taking the lead, who was a good cop, who was a bad cop and, and so forth. And we just let the experience of the different heroes and the backstories sort of judge who would know what, you know, uh, and be able to contextualize what this person was telling them, particularly about the the, the struggles between the different um, kind of factions in that army. So it was great. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that campaign. And then afterwards, I sat down and I did a bunch of planning and I just, I kind of, I, I hit a, a bit of, um, not a, a bit of brilliance, but like I just, I just hit some, an idea that was like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. So I've got a, I've got a really really cool idea for w- kind of what the next stage is going to be, or at least something that's going to come up in the next stage, because that campaign again is very very player driven. Like they go wherever they want, they do whatever they want. So right now they're dealing with this this asshole trying to take their keep. But uh, yeah, um, we'll we'll have to see how long that lasts for. But anyway, and then the, the final one was our cult divinity lost session and that was the first session and i think what i'm going to do is i'm going to pause 
this one, I'll call this State of Play uh, Part 1, and then we'll do State of Play Part 2 in a second segment. So this one's already 20 minutes long, so... Because I do want to talk about that one quite a bit. I've really... I have some thoughts on that game. So the last game I need to discuss is the Dracula Dossier campaign that we are playing with the Cult Divinity Lost role-playing game. So for those who aren't familiar, the... Uh, Dracula Dossier is a series of products that were put out by Pelgrane Press for use with their Knights Black Agents role-playing game. And the uh, Knights Black Agents game is a uh, gumshoe system-driven game where you're playing super spies who are fighting against a vampiric conspiracy. And the Dracula Dossier uh, products, they're sort of all, you know, they're all circled around or centered around this thing called the uh, Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook which is this really, really cool mega campaign that I've talked about before, I think, on the podcast. Um, it's The thing that I find the most compelling about it is that it is an improvised campaign. Like It gives you some really great resources to be able to kind of make up the conspiracy and, and adapt it on the fly to your needs. And, and the way the campaign is designed to be able to be run that way so it doesn't kind of the wheels don't come off a la, you know, the ending of Lost or something like that where the ending to your campaign doesn't make sense in, um, in light of what uh, has happened in it. Uh, but it, um, it also um, has some other uh, supplements that come with it, including this uh, collection of adventures that set, take place before the modern day where the Dracula dossier campaign is supposed to be, uh, or is it, it's uh, assumed that it's going to be run. And in... Um, in this one, uh, there's a, the first adventure in that it's called um, Stoker First Blood, and that's the campaign or the adventure we're starting off with. And uh, the reason I uh, I wanted to use Cult is because Cult is a really interesting story game that is um, it is uh, kind of like a, a closer point to um, to or it's closer to traditional games. It has many traditional game elements in it. Uh, that brings it away from the kind of the pure abstraction from some of the Power by the Apocalypse games or or even um, the level of abstraction that's in the City of Mist game that I've mentioned on the on the uh, uh, podcast before. And the uh, first session was was really, really good. You know, like one of the ways that this differs from uh, from traditional or from the other, Powered by the Apocalypse games, there's, there's a common sheet that everyone uses, a, a list of moves, which are basically just like actions that your characters are taking uh, to uh, advance the story. Um, they, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is a, it was a really, really good session. Lots of uh, good role-playing, lots of good um, use of the different abilities that the characters have. One of the interesting things that Cult Divinity Lost does is it has... Um, advantages that the characters can can select which are basically like feats and what they do they're they're very much like feats in fifth edition in the sense that they actually open the door to other um opportunities to, to other moves that you would not otherwise have so um there, there we've ran into a couple rules uh, hiccups uh, so far um like in particular in the in the time since I since the session, I've been desperately trying to find where in the rulebook it says how wounds actually heal. You treat wounds over the course of um, the uh, the game. Like they've got, it's kind of like a death spiral where like your characters can each suffer up to four serious wounds and one critical wound before they become uh, well, you know, dead or dying. 
and the the game does talk about like a lot of story games it sort of abstracts a lot of that stuff um, where each of the serious wounds we sort of write write down a narrative description of what it is and then it suffered you suffer a penalty uh, as a result of it until you are treated but I can't really find anywhere in the game where it says when those wounds actually go away it talks about like delayed healing and shit like that but I'm I, I think that what's supposed to happen is the wounds are supposed to heal between sessions if you're playing an ongoing campaign but I can't actually find anywhere where it says that it has a response to that and I couldn't find anywhere online an answer to that either so so that was a little you know um, I don't know if this is an oversight in the in the game or I just simply can't find it I know that the uh, the index in the game in a cult is fucking garbage uh, they've organized it basically as a table of contents which is just incredibly unhelpful for trying to find stuff so um, so that wasn't really helpful, but, uh, but I mean, apart from that, the layout of the book, that's a very, very minor thing. The game itself, I, I felt was, went really, really well. It was a very interesting game. I, I um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next, uh, next session with it. Um, and I'm trying to think what, yeah, it just, it was, you know, in comparison to a lot of the other, uh, traditional games that we've run in the last little while, it, it's been, it was really cool to get back to more of a, um, a uh, something that's that's a lot more narrative driven uh, because that's that game really like boy it is uh, um, it is I don't know like the way they describe story games is that you know it's it's a game that's based around a conversation and that you play to see what happens and like some of the things that were of particular interest like the, the way to to running that game. Um, are how the, like, for, for one, I, I had initially started the session with my usual info dump that I, I normally do, you know, to sort of set the stage. And then I was like, well, hold on, like, let's talk about, you know, uh, we, we decided to drop into a scene instead and started engaging the rules and, uh, and going through that scene. And, man, it was just great. Like, like they're, they're, they're very much felt like there was a game there but the game also really involved in the sense that players were making decisions of what actions to take and we were rolling dice and then we were narrating through the consequences of that um the characters had assets they could draw on which was quite interesting um the yeah and the advantages i think definitely made the characters feel very different from each other in the sense of what capabilities they had and what uh, resources they had access to uh, like in particular, there was one character who, um, uh, well, no, I mean, each of them had different things that they could draw on that were really cool and ways that they could interact with the the fiction in a different way. And I I found less that for me introducing things, it it was less a matter of me like moving them from one scene to another scene to another scene, so much as just like bearing, keeping in the back of my mind the different things that I I wanted to have happen in the session. Uh, and then, like the the plot developments, and then just looking for opportunities in the course of the conversation to introduce those things. It was enormously gratifying as a uh, as a DM. Uh, it felt very immersive. It was really satisfying to see up uh, at a couple of points where the players were just playing with each other. They were engaging with the me- mechanics of it, but they were in- they were you know um, role playing with each other, and that was really cool. You know, you, you see that sometimes when uh, you sort of force that on players some, in other games. But it is, it was cool seeing the, the players, you know, play the game 
uh, with each other without having to have my intervention. It was really interesting. Uh, I, and I really, yeah, I, I like that an awful lot. Um, the, yeah, I mean, I don't know the, I don't know how much I thought we, we would get through in terms of the, the development of the plot, but it felt like, it felt like it just, it really kind of filled itself out, you know, like the, um, in, in me, it's in setting the stage for where this game was going to go. I didn't have to, um, you know, force some role-playing scenes where the players didn't really know what to do or, or were trying to figure out what I was trying to prompt them to do. There was really just, uh, the way that the game is structured with the, the different moves and the moves like as examples, the moves, not only, I mean, there's, there's engaging combat, which is, you know, not surprising for a role-playing game, but there's other things like influence a person or, um, you know, uh, read a person or conduct research uh, and then the advantages each gave different moves as well, or a lot of them, most of them did, I should say, most of them did. And sometimes those interfaced with the other standard moves too. So like, you know, one guy could call in favors to try and get a boost to his influence a person role, or uh, no, it wasn't that, it was his um, his notoriety. His notoriety could really play into um, uh, to his influence a person, which was pretty cool. Um, he all There's another character who also had a... Um, uh, combat. He was an officer, so he could ma- do a move beforehand, try and coordinate, and then that would give him different edges, like different opportunities to uh, um, to make uh, different choices with his. Uh, what is this lady doing? Um, different choices with his. Um, what do you call it? Uh, with bonuses he could grant, or different things uh, that he could do with his uh, uh, with the other characters or with himself. Uh, so it was it was cool, and the, and the reason I, I say it was cool is because like it's not it wasn't just a matter of you know um, characters just kind of role playing through things and just narrating out the results. Like one of the things I find that story games or a lot of story games have in common with old school games is that there's a lot of like a single dice roll and there's a lot of conversation to fill out the story around that. You know, like where the um, the story games, you know, expressly require you to do that stuff. But I mean, I find that that's how I run old school games anyway. You know, we narrate and, and fill in a lot of the story, a lot of the fiction with uh, dice rolls, you know, with a single dice roll that, that dictates a hit or a miss or, or you know, whatever, um, or an attribute check or a saving throw. And I, uh, so that, that was nothing new. But one thing that I, I, I particularly liked about this is that the, the, a lot of the advantages would give uh, mechanical or story assets that the characters could later cash in on. And one of the players mentioned that it was uh, similar to the traits that you could generate in the Star Trek Adventures game. That was one of the things I really liked about that was players could actually take actions to set up things in the scene that would affect the um, you know subsequent actions by either other players or themselves. It'd be like you know kill the lights or set up an EMP field or whatever, like you know just things like that. This is even more so because you can you can bank it and then introduce it as plot twists and stuff like that later on. And, and they did they made really good use of that stuff. And the, the you know for um, for a, a group of players that often play a lot of uh, you know mostly more traditional games, I think it was a it was a good middle ground, you know, a good way to, to have the, the sort of the cool elements of the, um, uh, the story-based games where we're really engaged and, and, uh, focus on, on the story and the fiction and whatever. Uh, and, and then, but also providing some interesting game structure to that, that gave the 
players interesting decisions about resource management. Uh, because that's you know one of the reasons I love uh, survival games so much uh, or sub games in in a lot of these things is because that resource management aspect of the survival experience is just is awesome. I, I love seeing players having to make a decision about do I expend this now or do I expend it later or whatever. It's just a fun way to make players or give players an interesting way of making decisions about, um, you know, about the gameplay beyond just like, do I get a bonus to my hit or do I hit or I miss or, you know, what tool do I use to, to apply? So, um, and I did definitely like how much the players were also imposing limitations. Like one of the concerns you always have with uh, story games is that sometimes uh, if you've got a min-maxer player, I've got one player in mind in particular who I just don't, I, I wouldn't trust with the, um, some of the the uh, free form or free you know um, uh, freedom to sort of create modifiers or restrictions in your characters, just because I don't think I think they they would not be able to get themselves out of a min maxing mindset. But in in this game um, with this group of players, like they did a great job of being like, no, no, I don't think my character could do that, or I don't think that would be something my character would be capable of, or I don't think this bonus would apply here. One actually denied XP for one thing, and I ended up saying, well, no, no, I think you did, to give him the XP, but it was really cool. And there's a lot of ways where there is cross-collaboration, where it's other players are, I don't think cross-collaboration is an actual phrase, but (laughs) I'm going to pioneer it here where um at the end at the start of a session you make recommendations players make recommendations to each other to set up like hey it'd be interesting if you explored this about your character you know in this session and the players seem to really take to that and i I, that's i'm all about that like i i really love the idea of them um of story coming from them playing their characters uh particularly their interests their you know the things their their wants their needs their their backstories or whatever it just seems like um yeah, so as as likely evident um, from my tone in this, I, I just had such a good time with this with the game. I'm really, really looking forward to writing it again, and um, I, it, it in fact was such a positive experience that I've uh, I have subsequently ordered a superhero game called Worlds in Peril that has a very similar structure to Cult or City of Mist, where it's it's not a traditional like powered by the apocalypse game it's it's something a little different from that but and i really want to run more cult as well too to see how other people respond to it because it just man like it really hits that sweet spot for me for my personal uh taste in terms of the uh the amount of tactical crunch i want but the or the, the character you know building options the ways to mechanically differentiate characters from each other while also providing a just a a light touch to to let the story uh, you know just proceed it's really exciting so i mean i wouldn't want every game to be like this obviously and in the same way that i want every game to play like my ad and d games but man oh man oh man are they playing well though like i really 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 enjoyed this game it was uh, a thoroughly enjoyable thing uh, um the setting itself uh from it i i don't know uh it's a little dark for for my tastes uh it's not the you know i've mentioned in the podcast before about that but one thing i will say is the core rule book has a um uh it has the core sorry, the core rule book has a um what he calls uh a supplement uh not the core rule, but the game has a supplement called Teroticum and other adventures and that's a really 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 good product like the the that adventure has about five or six pre-made adventures in it 
um, often with uh, pre-made characters in it. So like if you want to play, have a session of a pickup and play where you're just playing one session or two sessions with your players to introduce them to and see if they like this thing, it's a phenomenal product. You know, really, really great. And, um, you know, the it's also it also does a good job, I think, of, of um, demonstrating the different ways that you can approach the game. You know, people who are already ensconced in the darkness and whatever, um, who are just fighting against it, or as well as characters who don't know anything about the darkness in the wider world or the quote-unquote true world. Um, so if you do like the setting or if this does sound interesting, there, there's two... You know, there's not only a, uh, a great core rulebook, but also a really terrific set of adventures that you could uh, snag to, to uh, get, be, you know, ready to take to the table, complete with characters and good, interesting character bits that you could just start playing with your characters. But I also found it very, very easy to adapt the rules to suit this type of gameplay, you know. And so, again, like if you're, if you're, if you, the, like, really, really dark horror, um, and by dark horror, I mean like it's it's a lot of there's some rapey stuff in the in the core rule book. There is um, like it does not restrict itself to just um, the the setting material to just like you know Lovecraftian horror or something like that. Like it is full on body horror and you know violation of the person horror and you know as well as sort of like madness and and um, you know to a degree some cosmic horror stuff. And so. The setting stuff is not does not really appeal to me. What I would love to see is I, I wish they would release the game with just the uh, the core rules, just the, the set of, of uh, horror rules as, as you know wipe out the um, the setting stuff and then just re, like adapt it to be because there is rules in it for creating adversaries and creating enemies. So it would be great to have just it as a standalone you know. Um, cult horror role-playing game without all the trappings of the cult setting uh, I would be all over that shit uh, and, I, and it would be also amazing if they released it as an open source thing so that people could just create their own stuff for it you could do some really interesting things with the system I think and uh, with the uh, the set of mechanics they've got there I should actually check and see if they have done that already I, I noticed that um, some of the other things like uh, that Modifius is involved with like Simbaroom uh, it has its own thing and it seems like the Unity role playing game also has its own sort of like you know self published library if Cult does then boy oh boy I should give some thought to hammering out some stuff for that because it is I, I enjoyed it that much that I would I would really like to sink my design chops into making some stuff for it as well but um, but anyway yeah it's uh, I really cannot uh, recommend the um, uh, the the game enough. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it did a phenomenal job of modeling not only um, you know capable uh, adult heroes living in a modern world, but like focusing on the stuff that will be important for this conspiracy horror campaign. I'm really looking forward to seeing where this particular adventure goes, and also to tr to exploring other parts of the Dracula dossier kind of mythos with um, other characters. So so anyway, so that's the state of play with with cult. So I think that is uh, the episode. Uh, this is uh, this coming week. We've got um, two more sessions of AD and D. Uh, we also have a session of uh, Pathfinder Second Edition on uh, Saturday, and then a an ep uh, a session of Modern Age uh, getting back. It'll be our first one in a month. Actually, I, I had to cancel last session on account of. Uh, the day job, uh, the requirements of the day job. So, um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding the, uh, the recommendations in this episode or the games that we got ongoing, or you just wanted to share your two cents about what's going on in your neck of the uh, gaming woods, uh, feel please uh, feel free to shoot me a voice message on Anchor. Uh, you can shoot me a uh, email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at dungeonmusings. Uh, and if you go to any of the recent episodes on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, you can find links in all of those, uh, the descriptions of the videos, that is, to the Dungeon Musings Discord server, and you're welcome to join us on there, where we have channels dedicated to a wide variety of different things, including uh, the different games we have ongoing, uh, assorted games, and then just discussion of same as well. So, um, until I speak to you again, I hope life's treating you well, hope that gaming is going well, and until I see you again, happy gaming.